Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Dell, the former chief customer officer of Salesforce in the UK and now chief customer officer at the 10th Revolution. She has spent 20 years working in technology and has amazing views on diversity, technology and the future of work. As a leader, Dell has incredible self-awareness, a true people first mindset and a powerful humbleness. In this episode, Dell speaks about her humble beginnings how learning and unlearning is what matters the most, how she changed her perspective on board quotas, and how she chooses how to show up and what impact it drives. Dal, you have spent almost 20 years in technology and you've worked at amazing scale-ups, you know, Salesforce being one of them. And so I'm hugely curious to hear about your technology journey uh, and your leadership journey. But let's start how you got into tech, how you got into leadership. Where did you actually grow up? Wow, lots of questions. And thank you for having me on, on this today, Timo. So where I grew up was in the Midlands. I'm born and bred from Leicester. I grew up in a very traditional Sikh family. And, you know, if you know anyone who's sort of grown up in that environment, there was a certain path that I was sort of meant to take, a very traditional path, which I did not take, uh, I, am, I am pleased to say. How did I get into leadership and technology? Following university, I, I sort of knew at university that I didn't really want to follow the traditional route a lot of my peers were going. I wasn't interested in the accountancy or, or banking. I wanted to do something where I was really dealing with people and I had a curious mindset. And at that time, you know, the telecoms industry was just booming. And that I would argue would be the first sort of tech disruption that we saw, especially in the UK. And so with that, I thought, right, I like people and I like technology. So I'm going to go into sales. And I've sort of been in sales in various roles and seniority customer facing ever since. And I absolutely love it. Amazing. And just going back to what you said about the traditional Sikh family, I'm really, really curious to just hear what values you still have today from that upbringing versus maybe the ones you haven't adopted. That's a really interesting question. Wow. Um, I think the values, my parents were first generation Indian immigrants. My mother was university educated, but came across and, and was doing basically work that did not involve her utilizing her degree. But what the, the, the things they, the values they instilled in me were hard work. I saw them working hard. They worked long hours. Resiliency, back when I was sort of growing up here, 
there, there was a lot of racism. It was very, it was very blatant. It was very bold. You know, the, the, the safeguarding policies that you see in schools now did not exist. So they gave me the sort of the resilience to, to deal with that, encounter with that. And the other was that was really the importance of education and utilizing education to always be independent. And I sort of, I guess I've always grown up with a view that I think the most important thing that we can teach the future generations is to have a love of reading and to be curious. Because the reality is if you can read and if you're curious, you can teach yourself anything if you dedicate yourself to it. They're the things that I still sort of move forward with and sort of try to imbue myself into the next generation that's coming through. Are there a few things that you've changed since then? I'm just always so fascinated in, you know, understanding what makes leaders tick and how kind of their upbringing, their family, their background, Lester, in that time have shaped them. Like, What, what are the things you, you kind of feel like, I guess, you have shed in terms of family values? As I said, I have really not trod the traditional path in any sense. I have always worked. I've always worked outside of the home, you know, and, and there's plenty of females of my generation from my background who do work. I married out. So when if I talk about the language of marrying out, it is that I didn't marry someone within my own culture mm -hmm. um, because I didn't want to. I mean, it's it's really that simple. So the values that I have sort of shared are the ones of saying, this is what you need to do. Mm. And this is, this is the conventional view, which to me felt very constrained. Mm -hmm. If somebody says to you, listen, this is the only way you can go. And these are the few things that you can do. I, by nature, I, I don't know if I'm just by nature quite <laughs> rebellious. That just does not appeal to me. And I will do the polar opposite. So I, I think I get that from my dad. But in terms of values, I think The one I've shared is to not be constrained by what society and people tell you to do. Mm. Follow your dreams, dream big. We only get one shot at this, right? So we, we, mm. we, have to, we have to do that. And in terms of how it's affected my leadership, it's very interesting because when you grow up with a background where you've been bullied and or you've been taught to grow up in very conventional ways and you sort of shed all of that, What I think it's made me do is make me a lot more of an empathetic, compassionate and collaborative leader. Because when you utilize certain skills to get you out of sticky situations, you realize the value of being able to collaborate and work as teams and work with people. You understand that people are going through things that you might not even begin to understand. So we should always seek to understand and we should always seek to be kind And that, I suppose, you know, when I sort of look at all my background, it all comes together to, to simple factors like that. The power of team and the power of collaboration is huge. Wow, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing it. Really, really fascinating um, listening to your background. Where did you then study? What did you study? Why did you study what you studied? Well, it's very interesting because one of the challenges when you grow up in a, a very traditional family is the, the, the prospect of an unmarried, especially young lady studying away from university and was unheard of. Um, and certainly in, in my generation, any women that had, had gone to university, it was unheard of. And my brother, smarter than me, I have to say, um, he's, he's older than me and he got I'm into- I'm sure you're being humble. 
<laughs> he tells me he's smarter than me. So I just listen. I'm very collaborative, you know. Um, <laughs> and he, he got into London School of Economics, which is obviously a fantastic university. And I had done very well in my GCSEs. I was like a straight A student. And my parents at that point had said to me, you can't study away from university. You're going to have to pick a, Leicester, a, a university, either Leicester or somewhere very local where you can commute every day. My brother somehow managed to say to them, she's got fantastic grades. You need to let her look further afield. And they came back to me with a very small list of universities that I could go to. London School of Economics, Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> right. So they set the gauntlet and I raised the, and they raised the bar. And so I focused and I just thought, I don't want to be here for the next three to four years. I want to go to university away. So I went to Oxford University. I just put my mind to it. I read English literature. It was a, it was a subject that I love and I love reading to this day. Yeah. And I, and I proceeded to have three fantastic years there. Amazing. And did, how did you find it? Like it can be quite daunting being in Oxford, all these old buildings, all these super smart you know, sometimes privileged people. How did you feel in Oxford? It was, bluntly, it was a culture shock. And it I was can imagine. a huge culture shock. I went from being living in a very traditional protected family. You know, we didn't go skiing. We didn't drink wine. They didn't listen to English music. So all the cultural references that when you land in an environment where people are doing all of these things, It was very, very, the word I would use, it was very discombobulating. It was really kind of disorientating experience. But I found my feet. And the thing that actually made me find my feet was sport. I've always been quite sporty. I've always been quite into my fitness. And I remember seeing sort of the rowing coach, the rowing coach and the rowing squads walking by. And the coach actually approached me and said, you've got the great build. You'd be a perfect rower. Have you ever rowed? No, I grew up in Leicester in a state school. We didn't row. Um, but I got into rowing and I, and I had an absolute, again, and that gave me structure, actually. That gave me purpose and structure in amongst everything else that was going on. I love that. Um, and it really resonates. I, I mean, obviously, I had a very different childhood and different story. But for me, it's the same. I was quite chaotic and did a lot of bad stuff I don't want to talk about publicly. Until I was kind of 16, 17. And then I got very, very much into American football, living in the US in California. And it, as you said, it gave me huge structure and discipline. And it channeled all my energy into positive stuff. And it transformed me within a year. So yeah, I, I, it really resonated what you just said. Yeah. Um, and then Oxford, you said love for people and technology, therefore sales. But you kind of figured this out at a fairly young age. How did you back then take that decision? You know, you haven't worked in sales before. There's not that much B2B happening in the UK back then. Like, mm. how does one stumble into, into B2B sales in technology? I didn't overthink it. Um, I suppose because I'd already made some quite big decisions in my life in terms of where I was going to take my life and the direction I was going to lead my life. My view was, I need to try this. It looks great. Let's see how we go. And I interviewed and was super successful in sort of landing my first role. And it was just, to me, it was very straightforward. It was just a simple, this is what I want to do and I'm going to go and do it. And how, how was it like first job, 
getting paid, living away? Living away, I loved. Listen, I'm not going to lie about that. I left Leicester <laughs> and, and I haven't gone back. Um, I mean, obviously I do. I still have family and I, and I go and visit. Living away were, was, was great. Again, because if, you, if you've done sports and you understand structure, and listen, I was that nutter that was getting up at 5.30 in the morning to go training on the river at university. Mm. So work, mm. the, the transition to work didn't really bother me. The getting up and applying yourself and just being really focused. And how I found it was I found it very interesting because I was learning. And that's something that's always driven my career decisions. If I'm in a fast moving industry and I'm learning and I'm meeting different people, the success naturally follows. I think if you apply yourself, you immerse yourself in the tech, you try and understand how a business operates and what it is and solve for customers' pain points, the sales naturally come. Yeah, that's a powerful point. I think learning is the number one skill anyway is curiosity, growth mindset learning um, is such a powerful leadership trait. And so at what stage did you then take on people responsibility, budget responsibility? I would say it was, um, I had been at a company called Alternative Networks that did B2B sales in the UK environment. And it was, it was there that I sort of started to take on teams and, and build responsibility. And the interesting thing is, is that when you're in a sales environment, and you've got teams and you've got big targets. The interesting sort of juxtaposition that I, or, or situation I found myself in was um, I had got married and I was starting a family. And suddenly the job that I loved, which, you know, had me up at crazy hours and driving here, there and everywhere. And, you know, suddenly became something that I thought, how do I do this with a baby in tow? It's just the hours, the stress. It's just mm. not feasible. Mm. So interestingly enough, I took a step out of sales for a period of time and I was fortunate to, to work for a very, very progressive board. And I would say that actually that step back that I took into a more operational role that reported into the board actually really taught me the nuts and bolts of how businesses work. And I think that's been a very, very important part of my learning on my way to leadership. Oh, I love this point. So many people try to go deeper and deeper and deeper in their, their field, whereas I think some of the, the most exceptional leaders just do something completely differently, build perspective, learn different things, take on different ownership, and, and then ultimately get much better in their, in their function over time. Um, it's a powerful point. So at some point, you decided to go back into sales. I did. I did. And the decision I made to go back into sales was actually, this is, this is where I, I kind of call my, my rocket ship journey started. Um, part of my remit in, in my role uh, at Alternative Networks is we were making acquisitions and we'd made a very expensive acquisition and the, the requirement to cross-sell and integrate the company was quite pressing. And I was given a project and a budget and said, go away and sort this out. And that is when I stumbled across Salesforce. Yeah, it, so, and, and I sort of saw this technology and it was mind blowing. It was agile. It was obviously cloud-based. It was technology that I'd never seen in a business environment, certainly within alternative networks or actually any of their competitors. And I led that project and I, and I bought it. And you know, I, I actually also trained myself up and became an admin and became hands-on, um, which leads back to this whole point of the power of learning and being curious. And 
I think about a year into that project, I just thought this technology can change the world. This technology will change customers. This way of working, the transition to the cloud, this is the future and this is where I want to go. And that's when I moved back into sales. Actually, my children were a little bit older. I had more support and I thought, this, this is it. This is the time now. I've learned loads. I've been a bit back office. I can piece these, these bits together, understanding sales and understanding operational business and pain points. And I can go and, and really help customers with this and be super successful at the same time. And that's what I did. Love it. And I want to highlight the one point you just made. You trained yourself as an admin, which I find amazing. So you really went went into the detail, into the nuts and bolts. You learned the stuff from scratch. You were yeah. you didn't feel privileged enough to not ever do this stuff. You, you did it. I think that stuff is amazing, being right in the front line. Well, if you want to understand a technology... And this made me a very unique salesperson in Salesforce because the other thing is I took a very big step back to join Salesforce. I was one below board at Alternative Networks. I had an eye on a board position and I took a huge step back to just becoming a junior salesperson. But I did it knowing that a backward sideways step will serve off in the longer term. And it did. It made me a very successful salesperson because I wasn't selling something I didn't understand. I was selling something that I understood. I understood how it worked. I understood how it could supercharge a business and sales teams. So that kind of gave me an edge, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So very courageously, you're deciding to leave after a long time. You're very high in the organization. You see this huge opportunity. You join. How did you feel about the very American culture Salesforce has? How, how was it culturally, I guess, when you joined? It was, do you know what? It was fantastic. I look back on my time with Salesforce with such fondness. And the thing is with Salesforce is it's two things. The people are some of the smartest people I've worked with. The talent that they bring in on all these tech companies, you know, ultimately bring in to lead their organizations is phenomenal. But you're, you're learning from and you're working with some of the brightest brains, but they're humble with it too. So they have a curious mindset. They ask questions. And I think the other thing is, is the way that, you know, people often go, well, what is Salesforce's secret source? How have they scaled? And there is a method that Mark Benioff used from the get-go, and he uses to this day called the V2MOM process, which is about how he structures the vision and the direction of the company each year. And what it gave everybody, everybody was very clear about what it was in that process they had to do. So you have everybody very clear about the direction they're going in and which swim lane it is that they need to, to, to stay in. So actually, the collaboration and the speed and the agility that builds in the business is amazing. So I sort of fell into it and just absolutely loved it. And talk, talk us through how that worked practically for you. So it started with the vision and then... You start with the vision. So there's the vision and then there's the values. So you say, well, what is it? And, and everybody, so Mark starts here, then it goes down to his leadership team, then it rolls down, it rolls down and rolls down. And even eventually, however junior you are in the organization, your managers or your leaders would have done theirs. And then it's time to write yours. And you really kind of try and personalize it. You, you look at the vision of, of the business unit you're working with. 
you say, okay, well, and these are the values that we need to imbue. So you're very clear that trust and customer success is something that you need to show up with every day, you know, because they were always the top values and innovation and inclusivity, you know, great values. If you want to talk about a culture, what better culture to build? And then you were very clear to yourself, well, well, what is my piece in this? What is it that I have to do? What is it I have to execute to make this a success? So whether you're an account executive to, to an RVP building a new division, to an SVP leading a whole country, you were clear on what you were there to do. And your V2 mom was almost your business plan and your route to getting there. Because another great part of what they put on there were obstacles, Timo. So as you went through this, you're very also very open about the fact that what might stop you from being successful. Love it. Really, really powerful. So you talked about the culture being all about trust, inclusivity, learning, you know, people, centricity. What did you learn about you as a leader in that culture? To be authentic, be yourself, find your voice and say what you need to say if it's the right time and it's relevant. And the right thing to do is always make sure you do the right thing for the customer. I think I really, Salesforce was sort of a, a period where I found myself is how I would put it. It kind of brought all the pieces together of everything I had done up until that point. That culture enabled me to really come into my own and to not be afraid of, of who it was and what my personal leadership style was going to look like. Amazing. Um, is there any story you can share about your leadership lessons? This is going to sound maybe slightly odd, but the story I would share is to say, you don't need a title and you don't need seniority to be a leader. Every single one of us can be a leader every single day in terms of how we choose to show up and interact and, and the impact that leaves on other people. And the story I'll give you in as an example was, Very early on in my career, I came across this amazing individual called Peter Coffey, very bright, an amazing presenter. He would basically open Dreamforce, which is Salesforce's flagship event. And when I saw him presenting, it was like another spark went off in my brain. And all I thought was, my God, I want to do that. I want to be able to present. If I can even do a fraction of what he's doing, that's what I want to do. So I applied myself. He mentored me. And I was very fortunate, culminated in me being part of the London keynote team at Salesforce World Tour, which to give you some idea of the scale, it's six and a half thousand people wow. with in, in room with lots more online. So you can only imagine what that actually must feel like, <laughs> nerve wracking in the extreme. Wow. And my leadership lesson was this, be aware of the power of how you show up and the impact that that has on people. Because following my keynote, I was inundated with messages, predominantly from ethnic minorities and a lot of women, basically telling me that they were so inspired by seeing me on stage that they didn't think it was possible that a, a woman and an Indian woman at that would be seen at a tech conference. So yeah, and, and the lesson I took with from that was, I was incredibly humbled by it, but people are always watching. And it's and if you if you get that opportunity or any opportunity 
to inspire and to and to show people that things are possible then it's that that's an incredible privilege to have such a powerful lesson and um thank you for sharing really really resonates and so i guess you increased self-awareness you became a lot more intentional as a as a result 100% and i became a lot more intentional about you know how is it that i i help solve for some of these challenges because you know my path was not easy it was met with a lot of challenges very purposeful about how am i going to help others who are maybe sort of coming through similar things that i came through so i became also very very clear that part of leadership you know one of the things i carry forward with me is i'm only where i am because there are lots of phenomenal people who mentored me or coached me so i think it's imperative upon all of us that when if we are fortunate enough to be rising the ranks or like yourself leading a company who are we we need to make sure we're also looking behind us to say who are we bringing with us because I always think this is cyclical and it's the cycle of giving. If we have received, we absolutely must give back as well. Really powerful point. And I want to stay on that topic a bit more if, if, if it's okay. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at STEM grads, you know, female representation is what, 15, 20%. If you look at technology jobs, it's still heavily male dominated. At Gusto, we try really, really hard focusing on inclusion, diversity, belonging. We're seeing really fantastically positive movement, but I think there's still lots of issues. And so what have you seen that actually works and what would you like to see, I guess, in the next couple of years? Joe, is this is such an interesting topic because we're talking, we were talking about it five, 10 years ago. We're still talking about it. And I think when these when these conversations started, Timo, about, you know, should we bring quotas in? Should we not bring quotas in? How much scrutiny should we apply? I was very anti-quota. I was very much on the school of thought of you must give the best person the job. But I look across the industry and, you know, you look at the figures that come out on FTSE 100 or FTSE 250 boards. And I sort of think, no, it, it, giving it that approach and approaching it in that way, it, it hasn't changed anything. So um, the things that I think have worked are comp your leadership team on this. There was a fantastic leader in Salesforce who had, he, he had built the most diverse team. And when he was doing his business reviews with his leadership team, they didn't just have sales numbers and customer numbers and all the, all the metrics that you would look at in the business. He also had them report on the diversity in their organizations and the amount of their directs who were diverse. And when a leader sort of demands that scrutiny and questions you on it, the change happens. So I think if you want to see the change in the things that I've been successful, make it a focus, make it a priority of your leadership team. People would say, oh, well, we can't find tech talent at this seniority. It, you know, it just doesn't exist. Well, he found it. And he, and he bought it in. The other thing that I've seen work very successfully is mentoring schemes. Look at your talent pool. Look at your diverse talent pool. Mentor them. There's lots of debate about, you know, is this possible, you know, is this fair? Is it equitable that people from certain backgrounds or certain genders or 
you know, what, however, whichever lens of diversity you want to put on it, is it fair that, that that's the sort of positive affirmation they're given? And my answer is yes, because if you, we all want to build companies that serve customers, we need to have employees and leaders that represent the same diversity we see in society, we need to see inside our companies. So I'm very, I've, I've sort of really sort of changed I would say my stance on how I think it needs to, to work. And, 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 and I've seen companies change. And I want to, I want to pick up on the quota point briefly. I know you're a fan of Marion Edelman's uh, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. Have you changed your perspective on quotas? Yes, I have. And the reason I'm sort of saying this, I mean, do the, should the quotas be set by an external body? Should they be set by, you know, the board? I feel uncomfortable with the notion of a quota to some extent still. What happened? Are we saying that people who are very well qualified, they now don't get the jobs? But the thing is this, tech is exploding. The talent market is huge. We have got such Uh, we have such requirements to reskill and bring people onto this journey. You know, as we look at more of the world becomes tech focused, you're telling me we can't have a talent pool, a wide talent pool, a diverse talent pool that we can't reskill. Of course we can. And I think unless you have a leader like my CEO right now, you know, started part of the 10th revolution, one of the companies is relevant and their job is to reskill and retrain, you know, people on legacy tech into the newer cloud technologies. And, and we're recruiting very diverse backgrounds to do that. So I think if, if companies can't make change, yes, put a quota in, quota your leadership on it and, and force that change through. Love it. Really, really clear advice. Thank you so much for sharing. And just, we talked about how that topic has changed over or not changed over the last couple of years. I want to broaden the question. And if you think about how technology has changed since you had your first job versus where we are today, I mean, it's unbelievable. We didn't have smartphones, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Nowadays, we on average spend eight, eight hours on smartphones. How do you kind of see this shift in the next 20 years? And it's an awfully big question, but I'm still curious because you've got such an amazing vantage point. I don't know if you've ever heard of someone called Ray Kurzweil. He wrote a few um, very, very good papers back in, I want to say around 2000, 2001. And one of the papers was called The Rate of Accelerating Returns. And what he talked to, and, and you know, he's not the only one who, who's talked to this, but what he talked to was that there's going to be, at some point, there's going to be an exponential change in technology that's going to even outpace what we think it can do. Humans are very, our brains are not wired to understand the exponential. And I think that when you look at technology and you look at the abundance of connectivity, the ability to put a computer into a smartphone and, and the power of chips and the advent of supercomputing, I think we're very much at that tipping point of seeing technology really, really change the way we live, we work, we interact. And, and I think how it's going to change and, and what it's going to do, I don't think we can even begin to imagine, actually, is what I would say. Now, do I think culturally we will all be ready to adopt sort of some of these technologies? No, not always. But I think for the companies who understand 
technology is changing the world. It's shaping societies. It is shaping everything that we do. And for the companies who understand that and utilize that technology to give real value back to their customers, it's going to be a huge opportunity for businesses, for consumers, for employees. But the key thing here is, underpinning it all, is data. Who has it? Who sees it? How is it going to get used? How And how can companies unlock that data to, like I said, give real frictionless um, experience to whoever is interacting with them? I love all the points you made, um, but I'm also fascinated to understand, I guess, the impact. And based on what you just described, the two things that that potentially result is you see this huge deflationary super cycle, stuff gets cheaper, everyone has access to food, Netflix, content, you know, lives in general will get so much better driven by technology. But then on the other side, will we see huge inequality because you have the haves, the technology haves and the have-nots and you have the people that align their careers with technology that will benefit hugely. Uh, and then maybe you have other sectors where you have less purpose because stuff gets automated. How do you feel about these trends? Firstly, how I feel about these trends is I think much wider debate is needed, especially around the talent and the reskilling and government and software companies. Actually, the tech companies really need to get their act together because there is going to be a, a displacement of jobs. It's inevitable, but we know that. So let's do something about it. What does that what do those reskilling initiatives look like now? I noticed that in the UK specifically, the Prime Minister announced digital reskilling initiatives. Great. It's about five years too late, better late than never, but <laughs> yes. let's go faster, right? Let's make it a real focus. How do I think about in terms of inequality? Inequality is a concern. You know, if you look at what's happening at a wider macro level, you know, in this post-COVID world, or it's not even post-COVID, we're living with it. There is a sense of, you know, technology is going to be powered to potentially do things that we've never done before um, in terms of, knowing more about citizens well at a very core level what does that look like for the people who are maybe not citizens so you're starting to move into this realm away from business and consumer and employee into this could actually really change the core way our societies are structured and that that i have to confess gives me gives me a lot of pause for thought at the moment so kind of in the sense that technology is deterministic and in, in the sense that whatever can be done is actually happening and therefore greater intervention and discussion is needed? Absolutely. I think greater discussion, I think greater clarity, greater transparency amongst all the governments it is needed. And I think, you know, we're at this, we're at this really interesting tipping point where, you know, there used to be this saying in Salesforce, you know, Salesforce is super agile technology. And when you were building stuff, you could say, well, you can do it any which way you want to. The question is, should you? And I think actually at a wider level, I'd ask the same question now. We can do a lot. What's the right thing to do? Now, I don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't have a broad enough vision, but I do think more debate and transparency is needed as we sort of look at these quite large topics that we're looking at globally even. 
Yeah, and we're like a far, far away from being proactive. And I guess the risk is we become really reactive. And I, if we move away from technology more into people, how do you see the future of work evolve? Um, for example, at Gusto, you know, we believe in work wherever it works for you. I couldn't care less whether Dallas in the office or not, or Timo's in the office, or if you want to work abroad. I don't really care. It only matters that we achieve what we want to achieve, achieve our purpose, our vision. And obviously there's a cultural element, there's some benefit in engagement, but how do you see this play out in the future at a, at a bigger scale, not just technology? Um, I think that's a great question. And I saw your announcement actually that you'd made, and I think it's really progressive. And I think it's, I think it's very smart actually also, because by making moves like this, you will, you will harness the best talent in the market. We're in a talent first market at the moment and, it, you know, people will go to where they feel sort of respected and allowed to sort of set their own tempo. The future of work, we work in a current outdated sort of normative structure of what work looks like. The nine to five in the office, you know, this comes back to when we were sort of going through industrialization of this notion of shifts and when you work and when you clock out. And the reality is we're all working longer hours. There is no I leave the office and I go home and I stop working. And the other rea reality is we're all probably going to work for, we're going to live for longer and we're going to work for longer as a result. So all of these things coming together, I think point to the fact that we are going to have to just get more flexible around the notion of work and of, you know, unless you are in a critical setting where you need doctors on call or nurses on call out, you know, those environments will always require structure But outside of that, if you're in if you're in a role where, you know, it doesn't matter when you're building your code or as long as, you know, it doesn't matter when you're building the tech or the presentation, as long as it's ready for the customer meeting. I think the future of work is going to, to, to be very, very different. I think we're going to see more flexible working. I, I see a lot of talk around the four day working week. It wouldn't surprise me if that gets adopted more. I think people will be willing now to take a little bit more of a hit maybe financially and not afford certain things in order to have more time to spend on themselves. I think in terms of future work, you've got the technology angle of how that's going to impact. But I think COVID has also had a huge impact on how people view work. I know it has for me and I know that everybody I speak to is, is exactly the same. Same here. Yeah. And you mentioned the term talent first market Today in technology, you probably have three to five possible jobs per developer. And then obviously salaries are going up. You see a lot of outrage in cities like San Francisco, where locals no longer can afford to buy or live. Nurses, doctors can't, can't live in a city anymore. Like, is that going to change at some point? Because the demand for technology capable people and engineers, data scientists and so on is only going to grow so from a society perspective, like how is that going to play out in the next couple of years? Are we ending up in a, you know, in a 2008 scenario where everyone kind of shamed bankers for high earnings? Are we hitting similar levels where like 20-year-old developers earn $200,000 at some point? I think it's inevitable that we're going to see that. We are, I, somebody once said to me, you're the, the new banking. Uh, I, not me personally, but the technology sector You know, this is where, like I said, there needs to be wider discussion on policy and governments and intervention 
and what it is that we're going to do as a whole for the people who have access to technology are trained and are earning the salaries that they're earning and can potentially work from anywhere doing it and those who don't. And I know that there are things like universal base incomes have been trialed in some countries, you know, affordable housing, it, you know, be, is being looked at. And like I said, I think, I think these debates need to be prioritized. And I think, I think we as society, we need to start looking at it at a wider level and say, okay, well, it's great. I've got this, but what about the 10 people who come from a background where they didn't have access to this or, um, they have something in their background that isn't isn't necessarily suited to them being able to adopt this at such speed. What is our safety net for the people who don't? That's my question. Dal, I feel very strongly that Boris and Rishi should give you a call and somehow get you involved in this discussion. I feel like politicians are missing this debate and it's so important. And I'm being very serious about it. I, I really, really think we need more of this forward thinking to anticipate these challenges because there are massive challenges that are coming for sure. Just changing topics slightly and going back to you as a person, I'm curious to hear how you stay hungry for learning. You've accomplished so much. You've been chief customer officer, huge companies uh, at various companies. You've done so much in terms of leadership, but how do you kind of stay humble, You know, stay focused on learning yourself? I stay focused because some of the, I always look at people who inspire me and the qualities of why they inspire me. And the people whom I look to are the people who remain humble and they remain curious. There's no other way to be. You know, I'm, I'm exceptionally fortunate and I'm exceptionally blessed that I've had the opportunities that I've had. I think it's a combination of people often ask, well, what, what, why have you got to where you've got to? And I honestly go, it's a combination of luck, right place, right time, and hard work. It's not just, oh, I work really hard. Plenty of people work hard and don't get the opportunities that, I, that I've had. So there's no other way but, but to be humble. And in terms of learning, it's just a mindset that I've had from when I was very little. And I think The rate of change that's happening in the world from technology to society, if we don't continue to learn, we become stuck. And I don't ever want to become stuck. So there's a great book that I'm currently uh, reading, which is from Adam, Adam Grant's latest one of Think Again. I love um, that book. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, it emphasizes the importance, doesn't it, of unlearning what you know and relearning. And I think that that's such a critical skill set that we, we all need to question ourselves. And, and with that comes a hefty dose of humility of the way we think right now might be wrong, but that's okay. Yeah, such a powerful book, really great points. And just on a, on a, I guess, on a mental level, how do you stay fit? You know, lots of demands in your life. You've got a family, young kids. How do you stay mentally fit? I think everyone struggles at time to stay mentally fit. And, and I, I would I will be I will hold my hand up and say, I think in COVID sort of any structure and routine that I had completely got flipped on its head. And so how do I stay mentally fit? I am a huge advocate of therapy. I am a huge advocate of really going in. And if, you know, something is troubling you, going and talking to someone about it. I'm a huge advocate for owning if you're struggling and, and you know, that. Uh, joint with being humble is just being very honest about who you are as a human being and self-care is is very 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 important 
And, you know, to be honest, if there's days that I'm just feeling very drained, which can happen in this world, we're on video calls and, and we're nonstop and back to back, take some time out, clear your diary. You know, I, I sort of laugh and I remember in sales, in, in Salesforce, someone hadn't hit their number and it was the end of the year and a big deal had fallen out and they were crying. And I sort of wow. looked at them and I, yeah, and I looked at them and I said, we're not surgeons. We're not saving lives here. <laughs> <laughs> we're selling like software is changing the world. I get it. But kind of get a bit of perspective. <laughs> And I think that's what I also do is I, I reset a lot. I'm healthy. The people I care for are healthy. We have food on our plates. We're very, very lucky. So the things that maybe we stress about, we really need to not stress about. Yeah, powerful point. And I found it fascinating that you said therapy. Most people tend to say mentoring, coaching. Where do you kind of draw the line? Mentoring for me is uh, uh, coaching and mentoring. I'm very clear about, and I tend to use that to be honest in a professional environment. Therapy is that safe space to go and talk about the things that maybe you didn't dare to talk about anywhere else. And it's that safe space to sort of bear your soul and be vulnerable, I suppose, for want of a better word, which I've never done in mentoring or coaching. Yeah, that's a great point. I became um, a coach last year and did a one-year course on it, and I love it. But therapy is so far out of the boundary of my capability. I see it as a very kind of distinct yeah, discipline. Look, Dal, it's been super fun. I learned so much from you, and I really want to thank you for being so open and candid. I found it incredibly inspiring. Thank you. And thank you, Timo. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to yourself as well, and thank you. 